Okay, we are going to start looking in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For as the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This passage tells us that whether we're Jews or Gentiles, it's all the same when it comes to salvation. And this is how you do it. You want to know how to be saved. It says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but you've also got to believe in your heart that He's been risen from the dead, and then you'll be saved. You know, I, I often will meet with other professors and try to discern, do they really believe in the resurrection? And I met with this one professor about six years ago. And this professor was teaching Sunday school class in his church and I asked him about the resurrection, if he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, oh, and this is actually a chemistry professor. He said, oh, the resurrection. He says, look, when we die, we merely change frequency. (laughs) You know, it would take a chemistry professor to come up with an answer like that. But I could never get him around to believing in the resurrection. And he was teaching a Sunday school class in a church. And then about five years after that, he was really old and quite weak. And and this was, oh, about a year and a half ago or so. And and, um, I met with him, and and he was quite an old man, and we met in the department, and we had lunch there right in the department because he was so old it was hard for him to get over to the the Cohen house for lunch. And I was really quite concerned because I knew he couldn't be living much longer. And I started to talk with him about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he came around to the point of saying, you know, I can believe that. I can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And to me, that was such a comforting statement. Because he had come now to the point as we had looked in the scriptures and looked at the different passages to say, yes, I can believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He said, I wish I had a few more data points. There is only one that's done it. But I can believe that Jesus Christ did this. And and it was only probably a month or a month and a half later when he ended up up dying. And... uh, But I felt so relieved, and I remember sending a message to several of my friends saying, Oh, Professor so-and-so, just just, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, 
in, 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 right there in the department, he came around to that point. The Scriptures clearly tell us that believing that Jesus is Lord and willing to confess that is not enough in itself. There also must be the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we see in Scripture is a physical resurrection. There is no way around that. Turn to 1 Corinthians. The next book after that is 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 covers this incident of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is he saying? He says, you are saved by this gospel, but there is a danger that you have believed in vain. And the reason he says that is because he's about to speak about the resurrection and he realized that there were people that were taking hold of the gospel yet not believing in the resurrection. And he said, you can't do that. There is a resurrection that has occurred and let me explain that to you. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So look what He says. He says, I am delivering to you the most important thing that I received, the thing of first importance. The first thing that I received, I'm delivering to you. And it says in Galatians, Paul is talking about his conversion. And it talks about how, how Christ appeared to him on the, road, uh, uh, on the road to Damascus. He appeared to, to Paul. And then he took Paul aside and he instructed him. For three years, Paul underwent instruction by Jesus Christ. And then possibly for another 14 years as well. But it was Christ himself, the resurrected Christ, who taught Paul. And Paul said, the first thing that I learned about is this, that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and He was raised according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the first thing, he says, Jesus taught me. That He died for my sins, He was buried, and He was raised on the third day. Christ Himself taught this to Paul. Verse 5, And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and... His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored, labored even more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Look what he says. He says that when he rose from the dead, it says that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. Cephas is, is Peter's other name. 
and, and then to the twelve. We know from the Gospel accounts that, that, that the first person that Jesus appeared to was Mary. And He appeared to the women, several women, first. And the Gospels record it that way because that is the way it happened. Paul is not reporting it that way because a woman's testimony in that day meant nothing. So, a woman's testimony in court didn't mean anything. It is like, it, it is like trying to, to uh, get testimony from someone whose testimony doesn't count at all. That's what it was like. So, when Paul is giving an, an account for how it happened, he starts with Peter. The Gospels themselves report it as it happened that he appeared first to the women. And that is authenticity of the event in itself. Because if the Gospel writers were making up the event, they never would have started with women. Because the woman's testimony meant nothing. But that they recorded that indeed Christ appeared first to the women is evidence that this is not made up. Because if it was made up, they never would have chosen the women first. But Christ didn't care about a woman's position in the court of law in that day. He appeared to those who loved Him dearly and looked forward to His return. It says He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. When you're making something up, you don't document the names, the actual names of the people who saw it. He starts documenting their names, and then he says, in fact, there were over 500 people who saw him at one time, and most of them are still alive. Now, this is about 25 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he says, of those 500, some are now dead, but most remain. And so he starts documenting the actual people that saw him. If you're making up a religion, you don't do this. You don't document the names to say, okay, go back and ask them then. And then he says, then he appeared to James, that is the brother of the Lord. James, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in Jesus as the Christ until he had risen from the dead. And then after that, they believed and James became a leader in the church. And then he appeared to all the apostles and last of all, it says he appeared to me. So Jesus, in the resurrection, after the ascension, came back in physical form and appeared to Paul and talked with him and instructed him. In verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that He is raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Look what he says. If you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is in vain. I mean, how dogmatic of the man. Who is he to judge? My faith. Well, he's the writer of most of the New Testament. And he says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is in vain. 
To just believe that Jesus is Lord is not enough. Even willingness to confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth is not enough. You must believe in your heart that He has risen from the dead. And what He's talking about is a physical resurrection. He appeared to them. A physical resurrection. Verse 15, Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because... We testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Whoa, there He goes again. Without belief in the resurrection, our faith is worthless. And people will say, well, how can there be a resurrection? Explain that to me. It is a miracle. Right? It is not something that happens a lot in our day. It will happen again. It says that all those who depart in Christ will be raised. And in fact, all will be raised. Some to everlasting judgment and others to everlasting life. But to this point, we only have this one data point, as that professor said. That's it. And how did it happen? It's a miracle. It doesn't happen all the time. You can't put it under your microscope and prove it. Well, how do you prove it? You prove it like you do any other historical event. And the way you make historical proofs is is you look at the writings from that period, you look at the eyewitness accounts from that period, and you see if they match up. And last year, on Easter last year, I gave documentation of the, the, the coherency of the four gospel accounts for the resurrection. Many people read the four gospels and they say it's all different. It's not different. It's just that you're not smart enough to grasp it on your own. So I'm there to help you. You That's what I'm here for. I'm a professor. I'll help you, alright? I'll help you through this. You go back to, you go on my website, jmtour.com, and you look at at, at one of the early messages on there, and and, uh, uh, it's on the resurrection. And I go through line by line the coherency of the four gospel accounts and how it all fits together. And let that help you. They are all really quite consistent and coherent picture of how the resurrection occurred. And he says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is worthless. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian but I don't believe in the physical resurrection. It doesn't work. Paul said, if that's the case, you're still in your sins. You know what still in your sins means? It means you're not yet saved. You can say you're saved, but Paul disagrees. Your faith is worthless without the resurrection. And so it behooves you to then investigate this thing of the resurrection because you can't be a believer in Christ and be saved without belief in the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't have it both ways. And many people today want to have it both ways. And Paul is quite clear. He says, your faith is in vain, in verse 14. He says, your faith is in vain, is worthless, in verse 17. He says, you're still in your sins, in verse 17. Could he have been more explicit? I mean, what would you like him to say? How could he have said it more clearly? Without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Verse 18, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ 
have perished. And if we, have, if we who have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. Paul makes it clear there is a resurrection. Now, what some will say is, okay, I'll grant you there was a resurrection, but it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a physical resurrection. Well, then 500 people were just seeing a spirit. And people will say there were hallucinations. You don't have 500 people hallucinating simultaneously. Because, in fact, hallucinations are not something that all people get simultaneously. Those are individual experiences. And so what Paul is documenting here is there were a bunch of people who saw him at the same time. Let's look in John. John chapter 20. And let's put to rest this idea that we are just merely talking about a spiritual resurrection. John chapter 20. Starting from verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. This is a common Jewish greeting to this day. A common Jewish greeting. Shalom Alechem. Peace be upon you. This is the exact words that Jesus said. Shalom Aleichem. The same words that are said today. Peace be with you. This is... And he said it to the group of people he knew well. This is as if you're from New York. When you're from New York, you say, how you doing? I'm from New York, and that's what you say. You walk into him, how you doing? This is like Jesus walking in and saying, how you doing? You're from New York, he's from New York, this is what he says. I don't know what he says in Texas. Howdy. <laughs> or, 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 hey, y'all. <laughs> but this is exactly what he did. He greeted them with the greeting that was familiar to them. And they were like, whoa, we know this guy. This is the greeting he used. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So he showed them his hands, these holes in his hands, and this hole in his side where he had been pierced through by this Roman centurion. He showed it to them. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. He said it again. Shalom Aleichem. How you doing? He said exactly the greeting so that they know, Hey, this is the guy. This is the same way he greeted us all the time. It's the same greeting. We know this guy. He's one of us. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, does this look to you like a guy who really wants to believe? This looks to me like a guy who has some serious doubts. 
really does. But legitimate doubts. These doubts are legitimate. And, and, you know, Thomas says, look, I saw them crucify Jesus. People don't get up after crucifixion. And you guys tell me you saw him. He says, unless I see him myself, and I want to make sure this is not a bunch of hocus pocus. You know, they got some guy that looked like Jesus that's parading around. I'm going to have to make sure that the imprints of the nails are still there. Because I want to make sure it's the same guy. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is just Hollywood. And they've got a guy just dressed up like Jesus. You know, Hollywood's good at this. They have lots of guys dressed up like Jesus all the time. Maybe, and I want to actually see the hole in his side. That's more convincing. I want to see if that hole is still in his side where that Roman soldier stuck that spear right up into his heart. Verse 26, After eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, How you doing? The exact words, he said it again. This was his greeting and this is what he used. And they knew it was him just from this greeting. The same greeting that's used today. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hand. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Then Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So what he says to Thomas when Thomas sees the Lord walk in there, I think he probably starts believing. And Jesus said, it's not good enough, Thomas. Come on over here. Come on. I want you to take your finger and stick it right into the imprints, these nail holes in my hand. And he made Thomas do it. He commanded him. He said, reach here your finger and see my hand. So in other words... You have to take your finger and stick it right in this hole in my hand. And then he said, Thomas, now, next thing, I want you to take your hand and stick it right into my side. And so Thomas looks and says, okay, I see the hole there, it's enough. Jesus said, no, that's not enough. You said you wouldn't believe unless you saw and, and felt that hole in my side. I want you to stick your hand right inside of me. In goes the hand. Then he says, deeper. Deeper. I want you to feel this heart beating. I want you to feel this pulsing in there. And then I wonder if any of the other disciples said, can I try that too? It might have happened. Thomas pulls out his hand, probably covered in blood, warm blood, and he falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. He recognized Jesus indeed as Lord and God. And Jesus' response to him is, Because you have seen me, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see me and yet believed. You know, very often we could think how blessed it would have been to have been one of the disciples to have seen Jesus resurrected. And Jesus said, We are more blessed in not seeing him and yet believing. A greater reward awaits us. We are more blessed in not seeing 
and yet believing the testimony of this Word and the testimony of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. And this is why this Gospel is not hard for me as a scientist to preach. Because it is not just merely my reciting these words. It is the testimony of the Holy Spirit that bears witness to the resurrection within the hearts. And this is why they could preach this Gospel. Because if they were merely making up a religion, they never would have made up a religion of resurrection. Because that's too hard to believe. They could have said, well, you know, Jesus loved everybody. Jesus loved the children. Something much easier to believe in setting up a religion. But what about this belief of the resurrection? The resurrected Christ. And if they were just making up a lie, they would not have died for it. Certainly not all of them. I mean, one of them would have said, oh, well, come on, I... You know, it, it was all a joke, really. <laughs> let, let, let me show you where we hid the body. No. You know, in, in fact, it said some of the... If you look at historical accounts, it's not documented in Scripture how many of them died. I mean, James, James one of the apostles, was stoned to death. But it, it's not known how, how many of them died. There are other historical accounts that document Peter's crucifixion, how he was crucified upside down because he didn't even feel it an honor enough to die crucified like his Lord died. And so he said, crucify me upside down. Others of them were flayed alive. That means their skin was peeled off while they were alive. You would think certainly, if they were lying, they would say, hey, it was just a joke. I was just kidding. There really was no resurrection. Men won't die for a lie. Now look in, in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Again, we're going to put to rest this, physical resur- this spiritual resurrection only. What we see here is a physical resurrection. Luke chapter 24. And while they were telling these things, He Himself stood in their midst. Verse 36. Luke 24, 36. And while they were telling these things, He Himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Again, Shalom Aleichem. The very words they well knew. His greeting to them. I wouldn't be surprised if when we get to heaven, the words that are first said to us are Shalom Aleichem. Those very same words. Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You see how physical this thing is? He says there are flesh and bones here. You're not just seeing a spirit. Jesus put to rest this idea that he was just raised spiritually. It is a physical resurrection. And then he goes further. He says in verse 40, And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you got anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. Jesus was nailing it home to them. He said, you got anything to eat? 
And what did Jesus love most? Fish. Right? He was always multiplying fish and bread. Jesus loved tuna fish sandwiches. Jesus loved fish. And they probably said, let's try fish. If he eats fish, we know it's really Jesus, because Jesus loved fish. They gave him a piece of fish, and he said, this is what I've been longing for. It's been a number of days in that. You know, three days I was, I was there in the ground. I'm starving. Give me some fish. And he ate it. This was a physical resurrection. He physically rose from the dead, and these men died for that testimony, that he physically rose from the dead. I met with one other professor in, in the Cohen house. Some students said to me, oh, this professor, you know, he teaches such and such. He must be a Christian, but we're not sure. I said, oh, I'll find out. So we, we met at the Cohen house, and we sat down, and, uh, and I said, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? As soon as we sat down. He said to me, physical resurrection? No, not physical. Spiritual resurrection, yes, not physical. I said, not a physical resurrection? He says, oh no, physical resurrections aren't important. You know, people see ghosts all the time. They turn on the light and then it's gone. It's just gone. It's a spiritual thing. Then I brought him back to these accounts. I said, how do you deal with this? You know, what, what, what about his appearing? There was no answer to this. There was another professor. student said, he must be a Christian. I said, I'll find out. And I invited him to the Cohen house. As soon as we sat down, I said, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And he said, physical. I said, yes, the physical resurrection. He said, no. I don't. I said, well, tell me your story. He said, well, I used to be a Baptist evangelist. And then I went to uh, uh, um, Harvard Seminary to study. I said, oh, go no further. Let me guess. You went into Harvard Seminary believing, Harvard School of Divinity, believing in the resurrection, and you came out not believing. Maybe that was the beginning of it. And you could, you could see this man's saga. And, he, he, and, and, and then there was another professor that I took to the Cohen house. And I asked him the same question, the physical resurrection. And he said to me, and I think it was quite a sincere response. He said, Jim, I wish I could believe it. I wish I could. But you see, this is the distinction Was there a physical resurrection or not? And remember, the resurrection only spoke of physical. To the Jews, there was no such thing as this spiritual thing, spiritual. It was physical resurrection. And then the testimony of Scripture is purely physical resurrection. And this is what separates us that we have to be willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that He's risen from the dead. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. This is the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament about 700 years, 650 to 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah was written. 
And in this, you see a lot of things that you don't even see in the New Testament. What was going on. The prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. For He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Look at what it says about Jesus. You know, the New Testament never tells us what Jesus looked like. We have no idea. We have no idea if he was tall or short, fat or thin, what his, what his appearance was like. We've seen many movies that, that usually depict him as quite a handsome man. You know, he's got this flowing brown hair, he's got this sharp nose, and he's got this, this very northern European looking appearance. And all these, you know, crowds just drawn to this, this, this man with these, these flowing white robes. But here we're given a glimpse of what Jesus looked like. It says he had no, in verse 2, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. It says there, there was nothing in his physical appearance that made him attractive. Nothing. Nothing in his appearance. And if you look in the scriptures, it only talks about physical appearance at the extremes. Abigail, it says, was a very beautiful woman. David was a very handsome young man, it says. Eli was a fat old man. Eglon was a fat man, so fat that when they put the dagger through his belly the dagger got buried by the fat in his belly and stayed in there. That's what it says. It only talks about looks on the extremes. Extreme beauty or some sort of non-beauty. It says of of, uh, Mephibosheth, he was crippled in both feet. And whenever it refers to him, he was a cripple in both feet. Of Jesus, he may well have been on the extreme because it says there was nothing in him physically that was attractive. And it says, in fact, in verse 3, he was despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. It was like, oh, come on. You can't be serious. And I understand your images is that Jesus was a good-looking guy. I understand that. But did you know that Jewish scholars look at this and they say that Jesus was probably five foot four with crooked teeth? This is what their interpretation is from the study of this passage. And you know what that does for me? That doesn't blow anything for me. That gives me tremendous hope. Have you ever struggled with the way you look? Have you ever wished to look any different? To be taller or shorter? Or thinner? Or more muscular? Or to have a nicer nose or nicer hair? Have you ever desired to look any different? Well, just remember 
the testimony of Scripture was that Jesus had no specific appearance that drew people to Him. And yet the world is drawn to this man because of what's within. This gives me great hope. This helps me when I struggle with things about my own self and about my own life. This helps me. This is what the man was like. There was nothing stately in him that drew people to him. Nothing in his appearance. When Nathaniel meets him, he says, Come on, you can't be serious. This man from Nazareth? And Jesus says, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You know what they used to do under the fig tree? Rabbinic teaching is you go under a fig tree and you meditate on Scripture and you memorize it. And he says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And then he says, and then, and then Nathaniel says, you must be the king of Israel. And Jesus says to him, you, just my saying I saw you under the fig tree, meaning that I knew you were praying and meditating under there. He says, you're going to see the heavens open. And ascending and, de- and you're going to see the Son of Man ascending and descending. Well, what is the passage that talks about that? There's Jacob's ladder where he saw the angels ascending and descending. It is, it is probable that Nathaniel was meditating on that very portion because then he realizes that this is the Son of God. Jesus could drill right into a man's heart because he knew what was there. And that's what He does today. When we preach the resurrection, we are not alone. It is the Holy Spirit that bears testimony to this resurrection. It is the Holy Spirit that bears testimony. That causes the scientist to fall on his knees and say, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Verse 4. Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Look what it says, Our sorrows He carried. This gives me great hope, because I too have battled in my life with depression. And it gives me great hope to know that my sorrows He has carried And that I can rise up in the morning and feel depressed and go into my prayer time and go in there scared and come out like a roaring lion that nobody would perceive that I struggle with sorrows and depression and fears. It's because of what Jesus does. My sorrows He carried on the cross. That gives me great hope. When He went to the cross, it is my sorrows He carried. And I go into prayer, and He says, I carried your sorrows on the cross. It's gone. It's nailed there. It's buried, and I've raised from the dead. Your sorrows are gone. And I can come out like a roaring lion. Verse 5, But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. By His scourging, we are healed. 
every time they whipped at his body, people think that Jesus was whipped 39 times like the Jews whipped because they were allowed to do 40. He was not whipped 39 times. There was no limit to the Roman scourging. You're thinking of the Jewish scourging that Paul went through. Roman scourging, there was no limit. Jewish scourging was reserved for the back. Roman scourging went around the back, the legs, the chest, and the face, and the head. They opened the man up. In in Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred. This Isaiah 52, verse 14. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than any of the sons of men. Jesus was ripped wide open. His appearance was totally marred in that scourging. They didn't even recognize him anymore. He was unrecognizable as a man, and his form more than the sons of men. They ripped him right to shreds, and it says, by that we are healed. By that man's scourging, we are healed. He was unrecognizable. In the scourging, after the scourging, they opened him right up. Verse 6 of Isaiah 53. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you're feeling good about yourself and you feel you've done pretty well, just Be careful because you're about to fall. Because the way Jesus deals with us is this. He keeps us on this razor edge. And as as soon as we start feeling something proud about ourselves, like we're doing pretty good, He lets us see what we ourselves are really like. And then we swing back the other way. And then we start feeling sorry for ourselves and He lifts us up and He says, Your sorrows I carried. (laughs) And He keeps us right on this edge. Because He knows our hearts are wicked, we can easily slip into pride and falling away from Him. Or we can easily slip into sorrow and depression, not realizing what He's done for us. And He keeps us right on this razor's edge. And He holds us there. Because pride is such an insidious thing. I cry out on my knees for an anointing to preach His Word, thinking I have absolutely nothing. And I get done with the teaching, and I know God moved and God empowered And I can start feeling good about myself. You see how insidious pride is? It is so deceptive. And then He lets us see how wicked we really are. And He brings us back. All of us have gone astray. But He has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. When Jesus was brought on trial, he went through three, tri- tri- three trials. He went through uh, uh, the, the civil trials and he went through, he went through uh, uh, the Jewish trial. And this, he had this, the, this trial before Pilate. He had uh, the other trial before Herod. In each of those, he would speak a word, not, not to Herod because he wasn't open at all. But he would sometimes say one word as soon as they rejected it. He would say no more. Because they rejected the light that was given to them. And he would say no more. 
like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. How did Isaiah know that he was going to be in a rich man's tomb? It was a prophecy. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. It is because of Jesus we are justified. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. The, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus lives to make intercession on our behalf. That's nice. Jesus lives to make intercession on our behalf. That means that Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you. He lives to pray for you. I don't understand why He will do this for me. But He does it. And He does it for you. This is what Jesus went through for us. And then He rose from the dead and it says in that resurrection He was justified. And we are sanctified because of His resurrection. And we are justified by His resurrection. And He took us with Him in that resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word, for what You have done for each of us, that You have risen physically from the dead, and that You were crushed for our iniquities. By Your scourging, we are healed. Every blow You took, every ripping of Your flesh, every opening of Your face, we are healed. And You carry my sorrows and You carry our sorrows. And Father, I thank You that You chose to have Your Son look just the way He looked. There was nothing in Him that was attractive to men. And in that I have hope. And in that You give us hope. Father, thank You. Thank You for what You have done. Father, thank You for the testimony of Scripture. And Father, I pray for these young people that they would see the work that Jesus has done in their lives and so be drawn close to Him. And that the truth of the resurrection would never be lost. And for those here that came into this place not believing in the resurrection, that they will go out believing. And that in that, they they may be freed from their sins 
and have life everlasting. Father, save their souls, I pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for the work that You did on the cross on our behalf. And thank You that You've chosen to live to make intercession, to pray for us. In the name of Jesus. Amen.